Meet me on the softer side. Meet me on the softer side. Softer side of your heart. Hi there, and welcome to the Skylight Books author reading series. You can find out about this and all of our other author events at www.skylightbooks.com, where you can also browse our inventory as well as order books online. You can also follow us on Twitter or even be our friend at Facebook.com. If you'd like to talk to a real person, we can be reached at 323-660-1175. And don't forget, Skylight Books depends on listeners like you to help support us. So whether you're in our neighborhood or browsing online, buy a book or two to help ensure that we'll be around for a long, long time. Thanks and enjoy. Allison Burnett is a novelist, poet, and screenwriter living right here in Los Angeles. His narrator, B.K. Troop, first appeared in Christopher, which was a finalist for the 2003 Penn USA Literary Award, and then in The House Beautiful. Uh, his third novel, Undiscovered Girl, was published by Vintage in 2009, but right now we're here to celebrate his current book, Death by Sunshine. Please welcome Allison Burnett. Thank you all for coming. I really appreciate it. Um, nothing's worse than going to a reading and having the person read too long. So I'm not going to overstay my welcome, I don't think. Um, so this is the third book uh, that's narrated by BK Troop. Uh, the first one, Christopher, The House Beautiful, and this one. Um, they, um, they are completely freestanding books, so people read them out of order all the time, and it hardly matters. I suppose if you read them in order, it might add there might be a little extra charm, but that's sort of it because I, they're really meant to be freestanding stories. And in the first book, he's 48; in the second book, he's 52; and in this book, he's in his late 60s. Um, but to, for a gay man like um, B.K. True, being in your late 60s, he feels as though he's he were maybe 100 or 110. That's how he talks about himself. When he was 48, he talked about himself like he was 75. Um, in this um, in this last installment, B.K. leaves his comfort zone, which is New York City, and he's now um, his world in the House Beautiful is that he's inherited a brownstone, and he only lets young, struggling artists live there. And so he me he's mentor, if not muse, as he puts it to these young artists um, who mostly just want to get away from him. They just like the, f the, the cheap rent. Um, in this book, he leaves his comfort zone of that world um, because he gets a call and uh, he comes to Los Angeles believing that he is going to be selling Christopher to the movies and he's going to be launching a film career. Um, I'm going to read from the second the chapter where he does what anyone does who gets the call from Hollywood and it's crucial that they get there for the big meeting is that he gets on a train in Penn Station. Um, <clears throat> and the chapter is called An Opening Digression. To those who adore world travel but fear falling through space on fire, <clears throat> there is no feeling quite so snug as that of boarding a transcontinental train. My heart purred with contentment that damp November afternoon when I mounted the steel steps of the three rivers bound for Chicago. I was shown to my couchette by a dapper little porter named Lewis, a fine old puss of a gentleman, all perfume, soap, and powder. His skin was rosy brown like a brand new penny loafer, and his manners were positively antebellum. 
Lewis, despite being in good old age, had no trouble managing my carry-on luggage. A leather suitcase filled with clothes, linen, toiletries, Los Angeles books, and plenty of cigarettes. And a canvas duffel loaded with clanking refreshments. Although the narrow corridor of the train was not much warmer than the platform outside, I fancied I could feel already the rays of the Pacific sun, hotter than a bride's breath, toasting my freckled shoulders. Over the whirring fans, I heard already the swoosh of palm fronds above my poolside hammock, where I scribbled every day, pausing only to bark out drink orders to my docile Mayan houseboy. (laughs) And despite my desperate poverty, I knew already the serenity of a man in the chips. Yes, I confess it, my unhatched chickens were not only being counted, but also breaded and fried. How naive I was that afternoon, how trusting of the fates. The first bad omen was my train compartment. It was nothing more than two feet seats facing each other next to a yard-wide window. A pygmy sink hung over a dollhouse toilet. Its mirror looked plucked from a lady's compact. When I asked where I was meant to sleep, Lewis yanked the bottoms of the seats together to form a cot barely big enough to hold one of my shoes. I exhaled my disapproval, but left it at that. I could scarcely blame Lewis for the decline of Western civilization, especially when its progress had cost so many of his descendants their freedom and lives. A half hour later, the train jerked into motion, beginning my first trip west since 1958, when I had hitchhiked to San Francisco and taken it by storm. As we crawled free of Pennsylvania Station, I christened the Enterprise with a glass of New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, Maori Pex Kiwi Rump. (laughs) Gazing out at the bloodless urban landscape, my toes curling with delight, I inwardly sang, sang the praises of this most enlightened form of travel. Fumbling for a cigarette, I recalled the famous quotation of someone French who said that travel was the most melancholy of exercises because it means seeing a thousand objects for the first and last time. It is to be born and die every minute. I lowered the fag and felt a surge of panic. My heart raced and I was forced to gulp air to keep from vomiting. The reason was obvious. Nothing is more terrible to an old man than the thought of dying alone. What if I were run over by a car in Los Angeles, or murdered in my hotel room, or my heart failed as I signed my contract? Who would come to the morgue to claim me? The poet Adrian was the only one of my lodgers who had made an appearance at the farewell breakfast that I had hosted for myself at the Parnassus Diner. Where was everyone else? Was I really so odious? Would it have killed them to eat a lousy bagel with me? I lunged for the teeny toilet. I did not use it, however, because at that instant, as though God were nothing more than a third-rate melodramatist, the train rocked, the little door, my little door banged open, and there facing me was the backside of a strapping young man. His tight denims, cashmere sweater, and shiny designer boots told me he was something special. <laughs> Well, hello, I said. Not even bothering to glance back, he disappeared into his couchette, slammed the door with a tremendous volume, and let out a scream. A minute later, he uncorked a louder scream, followed by a burst of Billingsgate, so frank and foul that even today it makes me shiver. Footsteps approached on the run. Lewis appeared and pressed his little ear to the door, listened, nothing but a few whimpers. He looked at me and twisted finger at his temple. Dude's crazy, he whispered. Crazy sexy, I whispered back. (laughs) Lewis frowned and fled. Feeling right as rain suddenly, I propped my door open with my duffel. When the young man emerged, he would spot me and say hello. At the very worst, we would become pals. At the very best, we... 
I dared not even consider it. Falling in love on a train? Simply too wonderful. I reached into my bag for one of my Los Angeles books. I had packed two dozen of them, ranging in quality from literature to pap. I chose one of the latter, an unauthorized biography of Ms. Cary Grant, which I hoped would offer some insight into the early days of vaudeville and life inside Hollywood's pink satin closet. Unfortunately, I was stricken with a case of the erotic gym jams and could not concentrate. I could think only of the young man across the way. Ah, you, forever dear, forever kind. When would I outgrow the craving? I threw down the bio and fished for a meteor distraction. The day of the locust. Next to Raymond Chandler, Nathaniel was, for my money, the best friend Los Angeles had ever had. He made the place seem exciting, like the tenth circle of hell, when in fact it was merely bland and sunny. Or so I had heard. I had never visited Los Angeles and had never read a word of Mr. West. Hey you, wake up. What's in the bottle? I opened my crusty eyes. How long had I been asleep? And there was my neighbor, softly focused, filling my threshold with his bulky frame. His skin was olive, his tendril hair gypsy black. His upper lip wore a hint of Byronic scorn. His plum-colored silk shirt clung to his hard, sweaty, hairless chest. I thought of wise old Democritus who deliberately blinded himself with sunlight so that he would never again behold beautiful young things beyond his reach. Madeira, I replied with a smile, reaching for a clean glass. Sit and taste. But the bottle was empty. This explained my deep slumber. <laughs> I fell to my knees and unzipped my duffel. I have every kind of wine in here. Monkey wine, lion wine, sheep wine, and swine wine. The monkey enlivens, the lion irritates, the sheep stupefies, and the wine swine brutalizes. Which do you prefer? <laughs> Red, he said. Excellent choice. I plucked out a new Chianti, unscrewed it in a flash, and poured. <laughs> he stared into the glass for a long time, then sniffed. It was a rough and tumble southern vintage, with the dry hands and big heart of the Neapolitan Scunizzi. He downed it in three mighty gulps, gave it back, and smiled at me strangely. His shoulders were broad, his legs a bit bowed. His black eyes were among the most disturbed and violent I had ever seen. He was at most 27, and I suspected that he slept only with women. Tastes like piss, he said. Then he jumped up and vanished. I swapped my Oxford for, for corduroy slippers, grabbed the bottle, and set off in hot pursuit. I bounced between the walls of the swaying car, but I never lost my footing. My heart was strong, my determination fierce. For those of you who did not travel by rail, let me be the first to break the bad news. The glory days of the club car are over. Today, today those who cleave to the hem of the lady nicotine are dragged into a cold, windowless room directly across from the handicapped shower. The indignity would be enough to make any sane man quit smoking, if any sane man smoked. It was here that I found my friend, barely visible through a bluish scrim of poison, slumped in the corner, sucking down a Marlboro. His hands visibly trembled, his eyes darted, a soul in torment. No stranger to suffering, myself, I am, like Virgil, an expert at relieving the suffering of others. I plopped down next to him. Curious, I said with a sympathetic smile. We both travel first class, and yet we're both slaves to the vice of the proletariat. He glared at me with contempt. Oh, he was a vicious one, capable of cold-blooded murder. Like a striking snake, he snatched the bottle from my hand. I watched in mute astonishment as Adam's apple bobbed and bobbed until the entire vessel was drained. He swiped an arm across his mouth and asked if I had more. I sprinted back to my couchette and returned with two bottles of my cheeriest, chattiest rosé. 
A half hour passed as he guzzled, but nothing I said or did could engage his intention even for an instant. So finally I gave up and held my tongue. Every few minutes some homegrown passenger, dirty, ugly, and toothless, would enter the smoking car. After meeting the homicidal eyes of my blow-top companion, he'd take three fast puffs and run for his life. Yes, this brute was not to be trifled with. And so when both bottles were empty, I stood up, half-mashed and fully famished, and bid my farewell. I invite you to, I invite you to join me for supper, I said, but I get the distinct impression that you'd prefer to be left alone, that you have no desire to engage in even the most casual, and here at last the young man opened his mouth and did not just speak, but spoke without interruption for the next 12 hours. <laughs> his outpulling was for, full of terrors and wonders. How I wish I had taken notes. Unfortunately, I was so deep into my cups that it was all I could do to inhabit the present, let alone cast an eye to the day when I might write another novel. Thank you. I just find him irresistible. That's why I continue to write these books. And people say, well, there'll be a fourth one. And I say, well, there has hardly been a groundswell for the third one. Um, the books are, are largely ghettoized because the narrator is gay. Um, and even though he, he tells stories, the first two books, he only tells stories about straight people. And this one, he tells a story that he is about him. But you know, it's a very broad canvas. But that just that simple fact that he is a gay man puts it into gay book sections. I mean, sometimes, how House Beautiful will be the fourth highest rank on Amazon of gay poetry. <laughs> they, they, I don't even know how that happened. Um, and so, um, so I, I do have a vision of BK. Some, I don't know why, I just had this idea of him wearing really starched um, flare jeans, a cowboy hat, very old and living in New Mexico and finds a baby on his doorstep. And I, I would like to write that book, but I just don't know if I have the, the intestinal fortitude to hurl it into, into the abyss of, of the e-universe. Um, but um, each of the three books is published by a different publisher, um, which gives you an idea of, of how hard it is to get these put to, made. And so what I'm doing is I'm going to consolidate uh, and get the rights back to the first two. I've already done it, and they're all going to be come out by Writer's Tribe Books, and they'll probably all look like this some, somewhat. And so at least they have a home, and then maybe someday, in, in however many years, there'll be one edition that'll just have the three books, and that would be my hope. If people are here. Well, the irony is, like, they, I guess, you know, they said the other day 50 million people in America have not read a book, you know, just do not read books, period. I mean, I mean of adults, of a literate adult. Um, but a lot of people are reading, they're just reading a lot, you know, they're reading on Kindle and they're reading a lot of, you know, they're scrolling and every bit of research says anything that you read on a computer you don't retain uh, as well as you do something you read on paper. So I always print out articles and essays that people send me because I know that if I read it on paper I'll remember I read it. Sometimes I get an email and I find out, you know, someone died and five days later I go, oh my god, that person died. <laughs> like the email just goes like, like it's just like not real, you know? It's terrible. Um, so if there's anything you guys want to talk about, um, anything we can talk about you know, the fascinating world of movies or books or both or anything. Who would play BK? You know, I wrote, I, I wrote a script for Christopher. Um, and I really, and so many people had tried to get Christopher May when it was a novel. And they were like, if only there were a script, right? So I write this script and I get so much love for this script. But it's like, this is right around the time that the indie world was kind of dying. I mean, it really has kind of died. I mean, yeah, sure, you know, there's 
take shelter and Mary, Martha, Eminem, Marlene, whatever. But very, you know, it used to be there'd be like 12 of those, and now there's like two or three. And but the, it's just a different world, and the financing of those movies is different. And again, it was like I thought after um, what was it called? Um, not Transylvania, Transamerica, and Capote, which is around the time that I wrote it, I thought it would be easy. I mean, John Lithgow said he'd play it. I had, you know, drinks with him. He said, sure, I'll do it. Um, but uh, for someone who could really get the movie made and bankroll it, it's just it's unbelievable. Um, it's you know, unbelievably difficult. Um, so I don't know if I'll ever, I think this one is probably the, mo the biggest canvas and the most commercial. Because um, it's got, a, it's a, basically this is, what happens is B, when BK gets there, he gets, sort of gets drawn into a murder mystery. Um, when John August, the screenwriter, read the second one, he said, I just had this weird thought that BK should become a detective. And I said, it's funny, you should say that I'm almost done with the third book and he does become an amateur detective. Um, and so that gives it a through line that um, is more commercial because you have mystery and the threat of murder and that kind of thing. So maybe someday, but the perfect actor for it is a, an Australian actor that I know. And I based the character on him physically. And he's not a lunatic and he is not an alcoholic. Um, and he's one of the funniest people alive. Um, and he is six foot four, balding, with a big belly, red-haired, freckled. He's big beard, gray-flecked like Walt Whitman. I and mean, he's just the embodiment of this. And I had known him for years, and he had sort of disappeared. So I wrote the book. Like, I really just got so caught up in BK, I just didn't think about it. And after 12 years, he, sh he calls and says, I'm coming to LA. And I said, great. And I didn't even think about it. And he came walking up my driveway. And I went, oh my god. And he's wearing like a hat and a scarf. And he's walking up the <laughs> Oh, what have I done? And I literally said, I said, I've got to tell you something. I said, holy shit. I, I didn't even realize I had done it. I just, I swear to God, I don't think you're insane. Um, and he's an actor, and he's, he was in Narnia, and he works quite a bit. And now he, he is like just desperate to this. He wants to write the screen. He's a very good writer. And he desperately wants to play the part. But if he did it, it would have to be the, you know, the $300,000 version because he's not bank, bankable. Uh, sure. Um, we know who the physical inspiration from BK is. Yeah, how much of BK is you? How much of BK is perhaps someone that you were inspired by? We went to Northwestern together, and there was a per <laughs> there was a professor there that was a really hilarious, grumpy, curmudgeonly bigot, um, and 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 Matt is a hatter and and very funny. I've only used. I think two of Coakley's actual lines in any of the books. Somebody comes in very dramatically, and and well, I don't even remember the context in House People, but in real life, this actress came in in black boots, a beret, and this scarf, and she came walking in, and Coakley turned and said, "Oh, look, it's Ruth Landis!" Dash exclamation point, actress exclamation point. So that was the only time I ever used one of his lines, and and he would say things like, "How wonderful for you as a person," you know, that was like one of his big lines. Um, but you know, I had I had quite a few important teachers in my life that were BK like. I had a, pro a professor that taught romantic poetry, and I heard that like he was this little guy and very feet and very brilliant. And I heard that like at night he was in black leather and stuff. He was a wild creature. And you know, this archetype of the older gay man who mentors the young straight writer is really kind of an age-old. It's an archetype of New York life. I used to count, like, the, the, you know, Gore Vidal once said someone should write a tragic novel about uh, a young artist who moves to New York and can't get ahead because he's straight. Um, <laughs> because there's so many opportunities if you're not. And I remember, like, sitting, I, I mean, I remember, like, 
I used to count like Peter Schaffer, Ian McKellen. I would meet these people often through Billy, the guy that this was ba you know physically based on. And and every time there were like opportunities lost. I remember being in a park and being like chased by Jerome Robbins. <laughs> and I was like I was like scared to death. Every time I turned around, he was like there with his beard, you know. <laughs> Um, so that all that was working on me, and I wrote a lot of Christopher in my 20s uh, as a 600-page sprawling novel that nobody read and nobody would have published if they did. But it was like all this hard work and two years of work. And then when I got older, I looked back on it and I said, you know, maybe all that hard work wasn't wasted, and maybe there's a way of telling that story again that will take it out of this therapeutic, the way writers in their 20s are writing for sort of personal therapy, and put it into the world. And I said, well, what if, since it takes place in 1984, what if Big Brother narrates it? What if there's someone who's watching Christopher, who's obsessed with Christopher, and even thinks he can narrate his inner life? And what if Christopher is actually writing things so that this guy is reading his writing and absorbing this kid's soul? And yeah, it could have been a woman who was obsessed with him, but I had a neighbor in that tenement where I lived who, you know, I would like see looking down through the air shaft, and we were friendly, but he was just very like omnipresent. And I thought, well, wouldn't that be interesting if he narrated it? <laughs> so, um, so again, it was, it was an architect. But, but once I started, I, so I took this 600-page book, you know, that was on like floppies, and I began rewriting it. And it was like 15 years after I wrote it. And as soon as I started doing it in BK's voice, I never, I just never looked up again. It just was like, it was like channeling. And so then I said, well, what about that other novel I wrote about this, this, this artist colony? And there was an eccentric person who ran the artist colony in the book. And this was a novel I wrote that no one read and no one published. And it was just this dead book. And I looked back at that and I thought, well, now what if I drop BK into that world? And again, it was just like it took off and it was just wrote itself. And all that hard work wasn't wasted because even though I was reimagining it, I was still using all that underlying you know, like reading every single newspaper from 1984, for instance. I mean, I had done so much work on that. And then, but then the hard, the scary one came when I sat down to write this because I had nothing in front of me. And because he's solving a crime and he has no idea what he's doing and he has no idea what's going to happen next, I thought, well, you know what? I don't think I should either. So he says to himself, wow, my whole life I've been a writer. I mean, my, in my later years I've been a writer, but all I've done is tell the stories of other people. And if truth be told, I plagiarized a lot of what they were doing in their lives to write that book. And this is what BK is saying. And now here I am, and every day I wake up and I don't know what I'm doing. Oh my God, I'm an artist. This is negative capability that Keats talked about. I'm living in darkness. I don't know answers. I'm groping without any rock solid thing. He, and, and so the irony, of course, is that he is saying this self-consciously. Holy shit, I'm, I'm an artist. And I'm doing that every day in my life because I have no idea who did it or if anything was ever done. I don't know where it's going. And so it was kind of exciting and I could only do that it's like tightrope walking. Like I could only do it because I just had, I'd been through it so many times in all the years I've been working. And I said, you know, I just had confidence that somehow I was going to end up on the other side. If I looked down or looked back, I would have just splattered. And so I just kept doing it. And then one day, like I woke up and I just knew what the book was and what it was. And it was 10 pages before BK figured it out. So it all worked out. I, I picture him as going from very high to very low, but I think he sort of talks like, you know, almost 
well, I would say like mid-Atlantic, like half English, and uh, he's from Fargo, North Dakota. And whenever people say, well, couldn't this actor, like Stephen Fry, could do it, I've always thought it had to be an American because it's putting on the airs that's half the fun. And if a Brit does it, it's like Brits are born putting on airs. You know what I mean? It's not, it's not fun. I, I, think, I think Bill Murray or those kind of people could probably bring that quality to it. Um, but I think sometimes when he's pissed or he's being more himself or he breaks into like noir patter because he, he goes from like the highest literary stuff to the most base kind of, you know, he calls people blowtops and he's always, he's, the, the, the slang of his youth is very close to his finger, especially when he thinks he's Philip Marlowe and he starts to really, he starts to sling the 40s lingo. Um, I think he goes high, but I think mostly it's, it's Kelsey Grammer, you know, that kind of thing. It's somebody who blows his top really easily. It's a firecracker. Um, it's somebody with a short fuse. No other fascinating questions? What are you working on now? That's my publisher. Um, I'm not, I'm, I'm not, I have another novel in the queue, you know, another novel that kind of got ground to a halt because of the way the business is going. The exact quote I had from my very good agent at the time was he said, You've written a brave and beautiful book. I couldn't sell Lolita right now. I don't have the stomach to try to sell this. It's a hero that's a little difficult to root for. And that's slang now, in the, and that's the new thing in the, that they say in the publishing world, which is another way of saying it's not commercial. You know, it's on a movie because it's this character, like how do you root for Humbert Humbert? You know, it's that kind of thing. And my guy isn't nearly that bleak. Um, I actually find him lovable and hilarious, but, it, but it's easy. Um, it, it's, the book is called The Escape of Malcolm Poe, and it's about a guy who's been plotting for 10 years that the d day after he delivers his eldest daughter, his youngest daughter, to college, that he's going to leave his wife and start his life over again. And he's been plotting this and plotting this all in his head. And now it's the first of the year. He buys himself a journal and starts to keep a diary. But he also believes that he was on his way to having this great future as a writer that he gave up when he married this very, very wealthy woman. And to please her very, very you know, wealthy dad, he took a job in publishing that he hates. So in his fantasy life, he would have been a great novelist. And this is not just a diary. This is his artist's journal. So it's full of quotes. It's full of what he's reading and thinking and dreaming. And it's a portrait of absolute delusion and insanity. And I find it really funny. But they're like, well, women will freak out because, you know, he's leaving his wife. You know, and I'm like, you know, like, like who knows more about being trapped in the loveless relationships than women? I mean, <laughs> I mean you know, they could totally relate. And, and, and the fact is, as the, because everything I do is, is ironic since I don't believe in God, um, everything is subjective in point of view. And you quickly, and you, you come to realize that his wife is so much greater a human being than, he, than we or he ever imagined. Because you, you have to see it through the prism of his warped, you know. And of course, there's reasons why he's leaving and reasons why he's the way he is that you discover in time. So anyway, it's a book that I would, I, I hope to come out with next year. Thank, thank you. Um, but maybe, I think, I think with, with Writer's Tribal, come out with it. I still think, I think it would make a great Tom Hanks movie. It would be like about Schmidt, but not boring at all. Um, um, People always get BK's name wrong in the book, and they call him BJ, and they call, and, he, and he always goes, right, he gets really grouchy, but it's, it's BK. Bryce Kenneth Troop. No, he, when he was in the in that House Beautiful, he steals. He's always reading the pages, finding the pages of stuff, and then you find out in, in Christopher, he has all the all of Christopher's. 
aborted novel with his cruel blue pen, or red pen, I guess, slashed through it. So he has a whole manuscript that he plunders to write the book. And in the second one, there's a girl who leaves, who, go, who has a, bi a manic episode and sort of disappears. And he has her entire manuscript. So he plunders that. So there's, I always wanted that feeling that he was plagiaristic and living through other people and merely a kind of a, a um, collator of other people's stuff. And this one, he's really completely on his own. And it's part of his evolution, actually, that he's actually sort of creative. Not just creative to write the book, but creative to wake up every day out of his comfort zone in Los Angeles, sweating in a shitty motel, and creating his life for the first time. There's a big arc, yeah. In the first book, he says, I'm going to tell you about 1984, the year in which I became something that quite closely resembles a human being. So he starts his journey by becoming sort of a person, and then how beautiful, he sort of expands. He goes from really just being someone who just wants to screw this young straight guy, and then realizes, oh my god, this is terrifying. I actually am in love. And then, oh my god, I just love him. I don't, I'm not, it isn't even sexual. And then, and then the next boy becomes a son figure that he would never defile. And in this book, it's a grandson figure. So he's actually joining the process of time and giving up on all that holding on to youth stuff. Yes, he's growing up. Well, thank you uh, all for coming. I really appreciate it. <laughs> well, you have to ask. I mean, I have nothing else to do. <laughs> okay, Maria. Okay. Well, I think he really has read a lot. I just don't think he's shy about... In other words, if he says that some Frenchman said, it's just that he doesn't remember if it was Victor Hugo or who it was. I happen to know who it was, but he doesn't remember. So he throws that out. Or, you know, he... So I don't... I think it takes actually some sort of weird intellectual confidence that he admits the things he doesn't remember because he's getting older and he's forgetting. But I think he really has read a lot, although I probably... I don't think it's deep. Do you know what I mean? Like, I don't think... But I think the fact that he brings those 20 books along and does read them, you know what I mean? He still has curiosity about things. Um, especially because Dan Fonte's quote is on the front. <laughs> and that was before I knew Dan. I mean, I wrote this a few years ago. Um, yeah, I love Ask the Dust. <laughs> um, yeah. I, I really enjoyed living here in L.A. and enjoyed BK's sort of screwing up of geography and names and streets and places and whatever. But don't you feel like well, I think one of the things I get, I, I shouldn't, and not that it's one line, who cares, but one of the things that cracks me up is that he finally feels at the end that he's found a home here, and he's, he's, he meets a man who lives in a beautiful mansion, and he feels like this is the real L.A., and all this stuff, and as he's leaving the gorgeous mansion with the leaded windows, and he sees a plaque that says Anno 1974, whatever it is. And it, like, it's like the whole mansion is, is a faux mansion. Everything is faux. But I think at some level he got something out of it. Um, but there is a, there is a feeling of, um, of 
you know, I'd lo I can't do it because it's the last page. But um, there is a feeling when he sort of bids L.A. farewell. Um, and he, I, I don't know if you guys have read you, um, James Joyce's The Dead, but he does a subtle parody of The Dead. Instead of the snow falling on Ireland and the snow falling, and he, did you pick that up when you read it? Did you? Oh, 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 okay. No, I'm not giving anything away. But I mean, he, he even, you know, he, he does like a little, a little allusion to the end of The Dead, but except it's rain falling all over. And it's like, on, and, and he describes like if, if there were a flood here, they, there would be an arc full of cartoon animals, and it becomes like a Disney kind of thing. You know, he, he um, I think he fully, get, I think he gets the city in a more profound way, in his bottom-feeding way. And I just love the fact that he sort of thinks he's in the inner sanctums of power, and he's just sort of floating around it all. And, you know, I got scenes on the studio a lot. Like, I think you really get a big vision of L.A. in this book, because he, he goes up and down to the most horrible parts of the valley, to everything. I mean, so... Um, Well, no, it's just that he thinks that the mansion is this great seat of eight, like an early 1910 mansion kind of thing. But it was that the plaque tells you it was built in the year 1974. Oh, oh I got it. It's another. Um, and also, I, got a, I had a great chance to, um, to do parodies of actual people in Hollywood. Um, um, some of the producers and the people and, and um, the acting teacher. <laughs> I just pray he doesn't read it. He'll never forgive me. But I did a I did a parody of an acting teacher I know that lives out here. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're a birthday boy. Not a great party. <laughs> um, anyway, thank you, thank you guys. Thanks so much for coming. I'll be happy to sign anything you want me to sign. You've been listening to the Skylight Books author reading series. Don't forget that you can check out this and all of our other great podcasts at www.skylightbooks.com. Today's music was provided by Fragile Gang. You can check them out at MySpace, Facebook, and the iTunes Music Store. Thanks for stopping by, and we hope to see you soon.